You're listening to a podcast from GUT. Welcome to the GUT podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK, and current visiting research fellow at the National Cancer Institute, Frederick National Lab for Cancer Research in the USA. In my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. I'm joined by both authors for this podcast, um, and this month we're discussing the current Editor's Choice manuscript entitled Interleukin-13 and its role in gut defence and inflammation. Firstly, I'm joined by Dr. Peter Mannon from the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, USA, and also Professor Walter Reinisch from the Medical University of Vienna in Austria. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Mary. Um, this paper is focused on interleukin-13. Can you just begin by introducing the cytokine to us in terms of its function and what is known of the control of its expression? Well, sure, I can um, start with this. The one first thing I think to understand or appreciate about interleukin-13 is it's quite pleiotropic. That is, it has many different functions that turn out to be quite cell-type specific. So, for instance, most prominently, it's uh, playing a role in allergic inflammation, specifically in allergic asthma, causing uh, goblet cell hyperplasia, mucus production, and even tissue remodeling. However, in other tissues and cells, it can induce fibrosis. Uh, it can suppress tumor immunosurveillance. It actually can be a growth factor for certain tumors, including um, Hodgkin's lymphoma and some glioblastomas. In the gut, it's probably most uh, notable for its um, effects on uh, helminth expulsions during uh, infections. And more recently, we've become interested in its inflammatory effects uh, in the gut, particularly in uh, ulcerative colitis and uh, eosinophilic esophagitis. In terms of the control of its expression, uh, it seems to be under control molecularly by the same things that regulate uh, the so-called Th2 cell development. In particular, GATA3 is important. Um, we'll talk probably a little bit later about some more recent developments suggesting that IL-13 can be induced not only by TGF-beta in certain cells, but also by some epithelial cell products, including uh, interleukin-33, interleukin-25, and uh, TSLP, uh, that which we're looking at in terms of its links to gut inflammation. So what cells are the source of interleukin-13, and is it found in the gut normally? Um, so the answer is yes, it is found in the gut normally. I think um, most people, uh, and the, the data suggests, in fact, that T cells, in particular these uh, Th2 cells that uh, can be responsible for making IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13, are the source of uh, uh, interleukin-13. And this is seen not only in um, uh, helminthic infections, but also in the normal gut where if you stimulate a group of lamina-propria mononuclear cells with uh, polyclonal T cell stimulation, uh, you, can, uh, have, you can measure uh, IL-13 production. Interestingly, in some disease states, in particular, ulcerative colitis in both animal models and in human disease, 
it appears that there are some cells uh, that are part of the innate immune system. These are in, in particular natural killer T cells. Uh, and these seem to be a source of uh, IL-13. Uh, in fact, in ulcerative colitis, uh, you can um, stimulate IL-13 production with uh, stimuli that are specific for NKT cells. And lastly, there's a very interesting cell emerging in terms of its importance in the innate immune response. And this is a so-called innate lymphoid cell that does not have any T cell or B cell lineage markers, but does seem to be an important um, uh, source of interleukin-5 and interleukin-13 in certain inflammatory situations. It's not been worked out whether this is uh, at play in the gut. However, the initial cells that formed the basis for the discovery all came from gut tissue uh, from uh, murine models. Interleukin-13 appears to have a complex receptor binding and signaling mechanism. Can you briefly describe this for us now? Yeah, sure. The, um, I guess the easiest way to think of this is that uh, interleukin-13 can bind to cells via two receptors. One, the so-called type 1 receptor, uh, is a dimeric receptor, so it's made up of uh, two proteins, the uh, interleukin-13 receptor alpha-1 subunit, and that binds or, or with uh, the uh, IL-4 receptor alpha. And when IL-13 binds to this receptor, it binds first to the IL-13 receptor alpha-1 subunit, and then it interacts with the IL-4 receptor alpha, and this allows signals inside the cell to be stimulated, in particular um, STAT6, and they can also uh, induce uh, JAK kinases, and there's some other receptor molecules that have been measured. Um, through this receptor complex, this can also bind interleukin-4, this dimeric receptor, so it can actually uh, function to signal both interleukin-13 and IL-4. IL-4 also can, can signal through a, an interleukin-13 independent receptor, that is its own IL-4 receptor alpha combined with the common gamma chain. Uh, now, the other surface receptor, this uh, IL-13 receptor alpha-2, is a, is a monomeric protein. It doesn't dimerize with another protein subunit. And it actually has a higher affinity for IL-13. Um, the, the, it's somewhat complex in that this receptor doesn't seem to signal very much. So it acts as a, sometimes as a scavenger or a sink for IL-13. And that's why when the two uh, types of IL-13 receptors are expressed, um, that the presence of this uh, IL-13 receptor alpha-2 can often inhibit the IL-13 receptor alpha-1, mostly it's, it's thought by actually uh, binding up uh, as, as a so-called decoy receptor, the IL-13, because sometimes you can overcome this inhibitory effect by adding more IL-13 to to the uh, to the situation, so to speak, but it is complex because, in terms of cell specificity, the IL-13 receptor alpha-2 has been uh, measured to stimulate some 
intracellular second messengers, and as well seems to uh, be have the potential to actually physically interact with uh, the other um, uh, receptor proteins, both the IL-13 receptor alpha one and the uh, IL-4 receptor alpha. So I think the simplest way to think of this is that the main signaling receptor is the IL-13 receptor alpha one a dimeric receptor, and that the IL-13 receptor alpha two, the type two receptor, acts as a decoy receptor. So that's I think the big message, but that that it's probably much more complex uh, than uh, I'm talking about right now. Well, let's move on um, and to consider the role of IL-13 in the gut mucosal immune response. Can you just tell us about this? Well, I think the easiest way to talk about it or to begin the discussion is just by considering the response to nematode or helminth infections. With an infection, there's a number of responses, including um, increased mucosal secretion, increased mucus production, uh, some hypercontractility, um, goblet cell hyperplasia, that is seems to be linked with IL-13 upregulation. And in fact, in mouse models, when they have taken um, CD4 cells from infected mice isolated from the gut, you can transfer immunity to a uh, B and T cell deficient mouse via the, the CD4 cell. And this can work in an antigen-specific manner. So there clearly is uh, an induction of antigen-specific IL-13-producing T cells. So that's And that's in, in sort of an easy, clear way to understand how IL-13 uh, is involved in this sort of um, gut immune response to an infectious agent. You know, they had done some experiments where they've experimentally infected um, um, human subjects with a type of a hookworm, and in fact, later on could measure uh, in the peripheral blood from memory uh, CD4 T cells an antigen-specific IL-13 production. So again, that's a demonstration of an adaptive immune response uh, centered with on IL-13. Now, it's been a little uh, more difficult to um, understand if there is an innate immune response with IL-13 in the gut, and this is something that's part of uh, active um, um, investigation. Now, this is really, we're just talking about the gut mucosa. Of course, in the respiratory mucosa, there are similar um, effects of the adaptive response, but there's also uh, more data suggesting that um, some signals from the respiratory epithelium can stimulate IL-13 production from these uh, so-called um, innate lymphoid cells. So uh, that's something we're looking at applying to the gut mucosa as well. So let's consider this now in GI disease. So interleukin-13 is implicated in the pathogenesis of several GI pathologies, namely ulcerative colitis, intestinal fibrosis, and eosinophilic esophagitis, as you mentioned earlier. So let's take each of these in turn. Um, firstly, can you describe the role of IL-13 in the pathogenicity of ulcerative colitis? Um, sure. 
so interleukin-13 and ulcerative colitis, the connection was made initially from an animal model of induced colitis, the so-called oxazolam colitis model, where animals got um, rectal administration of ethanol and then this haptinating agent oxazolone. And after a very brief um, increase in interleukin-4, uh, several days later there's an increase in interleukin-13. And this is production from laminopropria mononuclear cells. And the inflammation that was caused looked histologically very similar to ulcerative colitis in that um, there was a acute and chronic inflammatory infiltrate limited to the uh, the mucosa. So it wasn't transmural like in Crohn's disease and, in fact, had a unique uh, cytokine signature with high um, IL-13 and not so high interferon gamma. This observation was translated into human ulcerative colitis patients where a similar increase in interleukin-13 was also seen in active disease. And interestingly, the source of the IL-13 in mice was an invariant NK T cell, kind of a classical NK T cell, whereas in humans it seemed to be an NK T cell, but more of a type 2 or non-invariant type. The question was how would IL-13 be inducing um, inflammation or damage, and in fact, People had done studies looking at in vitro models of gut epithelial cells like colon cancer cell lines such as HT29 and could see that interleukin-13 uh, caused apoptosis of these cells. It caused induction of Claudin-2 that disrupted the tight junction so that there was an increase in the permeability uh, transepithelially. And it also seemed to impair the restitution process of uh, some of these cell monolayers. So there was some biological plausibility about how IL-13 could uh, be toxic to the epithelium. And once that's disrupted, the barrier could predispose uh, patients to inflammation due to the uh, exposure to luminal contents. Well, let's move on now to its role in intestinal fibrosis. And indeed, I see that there's a paper in the January 2013 issue I've got um, from Gerhard Lohner's group in the University Hospital in Zurich, Switzerland, which reports a synergistic relationship between IL-13 and TGF-beta in intestinal fibrosis. So can you tell us a little bit more about the relationship between IL-13 and fibrosis? Just in terms of the question of fibrosis, it's, it's been seen in a number of observations. First of all, uh, in models of uh, allergen-induced uh, airway hyperresponsiveness, for instance, it, with chronic administration and induction of inflammation, where IL-13 plays a role, there's an induction of tissue remodeling that includes uh, increased collagen deposition. So there's some sort of role of IL-13 there because you could block that in IL-13 deficient animals. Translating this into the realm of, for instance, inflammatory bowel disease, one of the other observations had been with a model of uh, TNBS colitis, which is another uh, similar to oxazolone in that you give ethanol and a haptinating agent intrarectally, but you get more of a Crohn's-like lesion in the TMBS 
in terms of not only the cytokines produced, but also the, um, the histologic appearance and transmural involvement of the inflammation. Interestingly, this is mostly an acute colitis. You know, it's really studied just for a matter of days. Uh, but when you do chronic installation of the TMBS, you begin to get uh, an increase in IL-13 production and also a lot of TGF-beta. And you see the onset of fibrosis in, in the animal um, colon. So that there seemed to be a connection in that way. Um, and I think that people have also looked at other kinds of fibrosing diseases like scleroderma, for instance, where uh, high IL-13 can be detected uh, in the peripheral blood cells and, and, and serum, uh, again, suggesting a link uh, between IL-13 and fibrosis. Finally, um, can you tell us what's known about the role of IL-13 in eosinophilic esophagitis? And has it been implicated in any other upper GI disorders? One of the... Um, connections initially had been with animal models of um, uh, allergen-induced um, airway hypersensitivity or allergic asthma. So in some of these models where um, they induced this uh, airway lesion specifically treating uh, the respiratory system, uh, they, as some of the animals also developed uh, an eosinophilic esophagitis-like lesion. Um, so, for instance, if they overexpressed IL-13 in the lungs, specifically, you could get esophageal eosinophil infiltration as well as esophageal tissue remodeling. And similarly, um, you know, in human disease, when they looked at cytokine expression in tissue from eosinophilic esophagitis, it was significant upregulation of IL-13 as well as IL-5. And also, they had increased signature expression of interleukin-13 signaling, such as uh, increased STAT6 activation, as well as some uh, IL-13 responsive genes, such as eotaxin-3 production. Um, and they could, you could also measure high IL-13 and IL-5 levels in the plasma of, of children with eosinophilic esophagitis and documented food allergy. So these data sort of linked IL-13 to the development of eosinophilic esophagitis in animal models and sort of confirmed a similar cytokine disturbance in human disease. Is there any emerging evidence for the role of IL-13 in any other GI pathologies that you're aware of? Um, you know, in the paper, one of the... Um, in terms of reviewing some of the animal models of uh, IL-13 in the gut and trying to understand the physiology, and this was sort of in the context of helminth infections, there's kind of a very interesting observation. That is, um, when people looked at um, uh, experimental uh, parasite uh, infection, in particular helminth infection in mice, they observed the hypercontractility. And it seemed that this was linked to IL-13 uh, pathways. For instance, when they looked at where receptors for IL-13 could be located in the murine guts to try to understand where IL-13 could be active, 
they found that IL-13 receptor alpha-2 is very dominantly expressed in gut smooth muscle tissue. Now, this is the decoy receptor, so obviously IL-13 acting there, you might imagine would have little effect, or the expression of this receptor, this type 2 receptor would would protect it against an active uh, effect if there was no signaling from the receptor. And interestingly enough, in IL-13 receptor alpha-2 receptor deficient mice, they had hypercontractile responses to, uh, to neurotransmitters such as acetylcholine, suggesting that the presence of this IL-13 receptor um, uh, maybe it was just because it was, you know, being a sink for uh, MEIL-13 release during infection was inhibitory in terms of hypercontractility. So I was thinking, you know, could this be a reason why people get post-infectious uh, irritable bowel syndrome? And in fact, um, when I began to look through some of the literature, there actually is, is some uh, investigation uh, in that um, IL-13 uh, was seen to be produced at significantly higher levels by peripheral blood cells from patients who had functional gastrointestinal disorders, including uh, irritable bowel syndrome, functional dys dyspepsia, and non-cardiac chest pain. So while this is very highly speculative, it's sort of interesting how uh, IL-13, which may be released in response to certain infections, may have, uh, I mean, it clearly has an effect on uh, on contractility because it's important in, in this helminthic expulsion, but how it may be also involved in other uh, GI conditions that we associate or we hypothesize uh, may have uh, a, dis a dismotility component to it. So this might be an important developing story for the future then. Yes. Um, so can we move on to um, more a, a therapeutic basis? And certainly in light of IL-13 central role in primarily allergic asthma, there's been a development of anti-IL-13 drugs. So what are the developments in this area and has the strategy been applied to GI disease? Is this something as gastroenterologists we may be prescribing for our patients in the future? There has been a huge and there's still a huge interest in um, uh, addressing the IL-4, IL-13 pathway in patients uh, with uh, GI disorders, particularly ulcerative colitis, based on the evidence and uh, the pathophysiology uh, Peter has uh, referred to. But we also need to say that, uh, of course, none of these compounds which are currently testing, tested in uh, Patients uh, with uh, particularly ulcerative colitis have been specifically developed for UC, but uh, the primary aim was always uh, to address asthma, whereas uh, initially there was uh, most of the interest uh, focused on IL-4 as a cytokine to get targeted. Um, the, the, the early results and uh, all the results which came in from IL-4 in asthma were quite disappointing. But now, uh, from more recent uh, studies uh, addressing IL-13, there were uh, more recently major benefits being uh, reported uh, from um, certain kind of monoclonal antibodies uh, targeting this uh, cytokine. And interestingly, they also made us aware on uh, something we have uh, not yet considered in patients with inflammatory bowel diseases or colitis specifically, 
that there might be subgroups of patients which could be, uh, for example, uh, uh, defined occurring uh, a certain kind of uh, endotype, not necessarily a phenotype, but the endotype, uh, which is, for example, the expression of a certain kind of uh, chemokines which are uh, related uh, to the TH2 response. Actually, this was uh, observed in more recently in a trial uh, in uh, asthma bronchiale with an uh, anti-R13 antibody lipricizumab. And this has further uh, pushed also the interest uh, in ulcerative colitis. And so uh, there are currently uh, some efforts up uh, and running. Uh, there are particularly efforts uh, with three different compounds addressing anti-IL-13. At least one of those studies has been uh, more recently uh, finalized and we are keenly awaiting the results. So another one is uh, close to finalization. And there is a third study which um, uh, alludes to what Peter has mentioned before to the fact that IL-13 might be implicated in the fistula formation of patients, patients with Crohn's disease. So this third study is a small one which tries uh, to address uh, particularly this question as to whether uh, an anti-IL-13 response might positively affect, so to speak, the, the fistula formation and uh, leads to some uh, healing of perianal fistulas uh, in patients uh, with Crohn's disease. Well, to finish up, I'll direct the final question to both of you. So, are there any current controversies in the role of IL-13 in GI disease? And what do you think are the important topics of ongoing research in this area? So, I'll firstly ask Peter. Um, well, you know, I think there are, in my mind, uh, two major things. One is that there's data in animal models and in vitro models that IL-13 may have a homeostatic role in the gut. Uh, that is, in some situations, it may protect against apoptosis or it um, may enhance gut restitution, especially, for instance, if it induces a, a trefoil protein production. And yet, when it's overexpressed, it clearly induces tissue remodeling and abnormalities in the uh, gut epithelium. So I think one of the questions is, which is it? Does it have a homeostatic role? And if it does, how does this get upset? And, you know, in terms of what Walter alluded to, I think this is a very important issue in terms of endotypes and how many endotypes uh, can give us the same clinical phenotype because the endotypes are very likely to be have differential responses to really targeted therapies like monoclonal antibodies. And when we begin to understand this, we may begin to understand the primary non-response rate a little better in some of these therapies. So that I think the the second major controversy is to try to understand. Uh, what are the differences in high versus low IL-13 producers in ulcerative colitis who look identical clinically? And, you know, as Walter mentioned, are patients who have not just high IL-13 levels, but high IL-13 functional signatures uh, in terms of IL-13 response genes that are all up upregulated, would these people be 
uh, more responsive to anti-IL-13 therapies. And then finally, sort of linking these abnormalities back to uh, genetic and, uh, and environmental exposures to really understand not so much how to treat disease, but maybe even how to prevent it. Walter, would you like to comment on this? Yes, um, I think uh, uh, Peter has summarized this uh, already quite nicely. Maybe I'd like to add some further aspect uh, to what he said. I think it's very important, very difficult nowadays to translate all the findings uh, we obtain from urine models into the human disease. So as uh, we have pointed out already, uh, to, to define those patients who might respond best to a certain kind of very specific approaches like blocking IL-13 or blocking uh, via IL-4 receptors or coming via both routes uh, seems to be a major challenge. And beyond this, it's also important to uh, acknowledge that uh, IL-13, if it plays a role, it seems to play a, a key role. It's a regulatory cytokine, which uh, is very much involved also in the adaptive immune response. So it's not like that, uh, like with an anti-TNF-alpha agent that we might see uh, by treating a patient uh, with an anti-IL-13 antibody that the effects might kick in uh, within a few days or weeks. So there seems to be a re-regulatory uh, response, uh, so to speak, uh, to be expected. And I think we need to be, be very patient to uh, evaluate the outcome to these uh, clinical trials. And uh, uh, in this regard, I think it would be also important, as we have seen from those patients with asthma um, bronchiale, that most likely, uh, first of all, we might not tackle all the patients uh, with such an uh, with, uh, with, uh, with such anti antibodies. Secondly. The effects uh, might uh, not come in that quickly, and uh, thirdly, but if they come in, most likely they might be uh, of uh, long maintenance, and, uh, and therefore, particularly for these kind of studies, we might also have a very close look not only to the usual uh, endpoints uh, in clinical studies like clinical response or clinical remission or mucosal healing. Uh, I think it would be very important also to look particularly on the inflammatory level and uh, assess uh, the load of inflammation before and after the treatment. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd just like to thank both of you, Dr. Peter Mannon and also Dr. Walter Reinisch, for joining me today. Um, thank you both very much. Thank you. Uh, it's my, my pleasure, Mary. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.